0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we're able to come together. We're able to meet in a building. We're able to pray to you. We're able to reflect about you. We're able to hear your word. We're able to look at your word, Father. I just thank you for that privilege. Um, I ask Lord that your Holy Spirit right now would just would calm our minds, that we would hear just your voice. Um, that you would just speak to our inner desires. Um, if anyone here is feeling the pressures of, the, of being in isolation, uh, any despair of the chaos that's going on in this world, I ask, Lord, that you would just comfort them and they would hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I, when, I, when I was a photojournalist, I was always—you always had to have your own car, and because you have to be at the at the mercy of a call, you have to go like right, right away to somewhere to take a photo of the either a crime scene or a fire or any city event. Um, I was a freelancer, and there's time came in 2015 when my first car broke down, and at the same time, I had a really big job to do the next day, so I was in a quick rush to buy a car. So I ended up buying a brand new car. Um, I'm not going to say the brand because I don't want to talk the brand down or try to convince you of a different car company to buy. That's not the point of this. Um, But what happened is I bought it in 2015, and by 2017, I had driven over 100,000 kilometers. And the thing when you buy a new car, normally after the 100,000 kilometer mark, your warranty for the engine stuff just it ends at the 100,000-kilometer mark, unless you pay for the extra warranties. But at that moment, I was pretty strapped for cash, so I didn't. And what actually happened two years later in 2017, the engine stopped when I was around five 5,000K over the, the warranty. So in that moment, I felt very, very distraught. Like, I just bought pretty much like it's a new car. Like, it's only two years old, and the engine just just ended um and i didn't know what to do so i called them and i asked like i just i wanted them to help me out because like two-year-old car like it should be fine anyone who buys a new car like you would expect it to last more than two years regardless of how many kilometers you put on it and what they told me was just a flat-out no um we cannot there's nothing we can do about it um even though you've been doing all the oil changes with us even though You've been getting the service checks whenever you're supposed to. There's nothing we can do, and if you want this fixed, it's going to cost you five thousand dollars to get a new engine. Um, And I just couldn't like I couldn't afford that. So I was me and Amy, because I was married at that time. We're just at a loss of what to do. We we had no idea what to do. Um, We prayed. We 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 felt pretty hopeless because you like with my job and then just. We very outdoor active lifestyle. You you want a car. You need a car to get around to things, and and after around like two days after, when we just felt so despair, like completely lost, like no hope. They called. I got a phone call from them in the morning, and they just said that you know what, we will we'll fix the engine for you. Just bring it in, and we'll we'll cover it all. Um, and they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to cover anything for me. Uh, because technically I was the—I was in the wrong. I was over the warranty, um, over the 100K, and they decided to do it, and I felt very grateful. So I, I'm still driving that car. There's been some other issues, but that's a different story. Um, I won't get into that. And today, um, all through the summer, if you've been coming here every Sunday, we've been going through a series called The, the Crucified Messiah. And this week... The, my, the title of the sermon is called, Jesus Died to Redeem. So if you haven't already, um, turn to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and we'll, we'll just take a look at that. Because the story I just told really fits with that the whole idea of redemption. So the context of Titus is Paul and Titus had just done a trip to the Crete Island in the Mediterranean Sea and he left Titus there because some new churches just sprang up so he, they needed a leader so this this epistle this letter is written to Titus and it's Paul telling him what he needs to do in the face of of persecution what you need to do in the face of false teaching uh is a very greek society there so there's a lot of like all these different gods and stuff like that So this is Paul writing to Titus. It's a very personal letter, Um, telling him how to, how he needs to organize his leadership, um, how he needs to run the church in the face of false teaching. And I would, before I read the first verse, I would like to ask three questions: If someone wronged you or owed you something, would you want, would you want them to make it right or pay you back? You don't have to answer out loud; just, just for you to think about. Or if you did something for someone, would you want them to act a certain way? Afterwards, you did you did something really nice for them. We can all agree, or most of us can agree, that deep down inside we want that. We want we want people to to do something for us after we've done a nice act for them, or if we've lent someone money, we want them to do a nice. They want we want to be paid back. Um, But here. Paul's not talking about... Paul is talking about this unmerited grace, this unmerited redemption. Um, and he's, he's really getting Titus to tell himself personally to reflect on it, and then also to tell his congregation to reflect on it and to live a certain way. And we are to also look at this text, because the Bible wasn't just written for then, it's written for now as well, because it's God's word, that we need to reflect on it as well. So I'll begin... In verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, Paul, right right off the bat, um, with what he said before, because in verse 11 it says, for the grace of God. So whenever you see for, or therefore, or surely, surely, you need to look back at what was just said, because it gives the context of what's being said in that moment. So Paul is just is telling Titus because of all this stuff because of the you need to teach sound doctrine because you need to live a certain way you need to have certain qualifications for elders you need to look to the grace of God to teach you how to act for in the future events because he says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people that is what he's talking about he is talking about Jesus crucified. He's talking about Jesus rising from the dead. You need to look at that. You need to, that should be your lens for how you go forward in life and how you train people up. And Jesus was seen by hundreds of people. So in light of that event, of this gracious event, this unmerited grace event, you need to live that way. Now some of you might be saying, well, this text doesn't, isn't it saying right here, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Aren't you saying, isn't that, isn't salvation for all people then? Because the text right here in verse 11 says that. Isn't, isn't, um, like why, why is the church so obsessed with trying to convert people then if salvation is for everyone? why Why should I repent or change if salvation is for everyone? Why can't I just live the way I want and be saved? If if it says right here that salvation is for everyone, shouldn't I just be able to do what I want, live my life, do all, do all that? Well, isn't that just like, when you think about it, that's just the sound. That's like the anthem of our culture we live in today. It was also the anthem of the culture back then. That these certain things, like, don't tell me what to do. We hear that all the time. Or live your life. Be free. I was <clears throat> I was born this way. We're all in this together. That's a very popular one. Uh, or coexist. Why can't we all coexist? But really, when you pick it apart, when you pick these things apart, they're very hollow words. They're very ho- there's nothing to them. Because as soon as someone does something, do the, when someone proclaims these slogans, when they do something that doesn't fit their mold, or if they have a, the person has a different opinion than the person saying, be saying these slogans, right away, they get excommunicated. They get ostracized. They get slandered. They get called like a bigot, or like you just you're so narrow-minded you just like can't see it. Or if someone does something that the person feels wronged about, like very personally wronged. They want, they demand a redemption for what that person did. They demand almost a sacrifice. A sacrifice needs to be done for that event. And there's, this also happens when great, big, chaotic things happen in our world. People always want someone to be held accountable. Someone must be held accountable for that event. See, these slogans go against the very, our very human nature, our inner, this inner brokenness that we always demand to be right, things to be made right, and it has to cost something. See, verse 11 is the text that the doctrine of universalism, which is the doctrine um, that these people say that everyone is saved, everything is fine, you can live however you want, you're saved in the end. This is what, verse 11 is, this is where they get, one of the things they get that from, where they get all is saved, that there's no consequences for your actions. But that belief has no footing, because you can't just pick verses out. You have to continue. You can't just pick one verse, and that's how you live everything, regardless of this, this book of all these other pages. See, the doctrine of universalism, or that all are saved, is, it's very deceptive it's a very unfortunate thing it's as deceptive as when in the garden of eden when the serpent was debating with eve about to eat the apple that you can get the knowledge of god you can be like god and and it says that the serpent said to her surely you will not die it's almost that's almost what the, the doctrine of universalism teaches that you'll be like god that you can do what you want and nothing will happen there's no consequences But in verse 12, it kind of shuts that down. So I'll continue on. But I'll read verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So if verse 11 is teaching that all are saved, why then in the next breath it says to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives? They just like, it doesn't line up if you read the, if you read the flow of the text. Because if you really, and then if you look at it even more, self-controlled, to live self-controlled, like what is, what does that mean? Self-controlled is the be in control of like your emotions, your anger, Uh, to be not swayed by money or greed, to make wise decisions. Self-controlled is to make wise decisions regardless of what you're going through. Obviously, that's hard at times, easier said than done. It's to hold down a job, to be controlled in your job, not to, at the whim, just leave and go to the next. It's to be controlled. It could also, for some people, to, to be controlled is just or not to be controlled, to be self-controlled. is just to be a good person. And then in the next, it also says upright lives. It's to be nice to people, hospitable. It's to be, it could be a respected member of the community. And then it also says godly lives. And godly lives is just following God's, it could be God's laws, to be upright. And then really, like God's law, it's thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's to honor your parents. These are all things deep down we strive for. But our culture says the church the church teaches this doctrine or has this belief that you can't have fun. That you have to be a fundamentalist. But this doesn't sound like the way our culture perceives the church. This sounds this this sounds like the way our culture actually strive they want these attributes. They want them. Um, And it's it's very interesting because then if you also look at the beginning of verse 12 when it says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Like, what is that? See, ungodliness is the opposite of following God's moral laws. So that's like committing murder. That's committing adultery. These are things that we don't want to strive for. Um, Worldly passions. Worldly passions are things that just like control you Um, it could be like the control of like idols in your life see our culture always claims that the church teaches that you can't have any fun you can't do anything but right here it's talking about actually these are things everyone wants it's really interesting and continuing into verse 13 or hold on it says present age so what does that mean just to say that really briefly. Present age is the age that you live in. So back, it's the age that they were, at this time was written. That was their present age. We are now in our present age, and we are to live accordingly with all that around surrounding us. In verse thirteen, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what what is hope? This sounds like like be mad. This sounds like. A fairy tale it sounds like a good story um good a good story and it's really interesting if you let's dig into that into the, the good story it sounds like a good work of fiction some of you might be thinking to yourself and if we think about it like why why is it in these great f- works of fiction like lord of the rings or the modern one harry potter or like greek mythology from back in the day why is why does it why does it capture us Capture our imaginations. Why does fiction do that? These stories, these stories that have that have heroes in the beginning, and there's always the character plot. There's always the characters you kind of relate to and you don't like. Um, There's the events that start bringing up the character. There's hardships. There's wars. Um, There's the there's always that moment in the story of hopelessness, of despair when there's no hope, and then the hero rises up. Have you ever thought how, how much the Bible is like that? How from the beginning to the end, there's this plot line that runs through it. There's, there's the beginning. There's the wars. There's the people of God who, are, who become isolated, who get cast out, who become slaves, who are then redeemed and then again are cast out again. Um, and then there's the Savior, Jesus, comes. But there's, there's a big difference between works of fiction and the Bible. The Bible is based on historical events and historical people. Everything in the Bible happened. Like, Jesus came. God came and walked among us. These historical events. He came, He died. It's written about. People saw it. People who didn't believe in Jesus saw it. It has been written about. You see, the Bible is what, is the greatest story ever told. It speaks to our greatest longings. It speaks to our inner, our inner desires. The things that we find that everyone finds so much—just the stories of fiction we wish that are true—the Bible is true. The Bible is the ultimate story. It's the the gospel message. The gospel message. You see, we are to we are to put our faith and trust in Jesus because the cross happened. We are to live this way because the cross happened, as Paul is writing to Tim or Titus about. We are to live this way with a hope because the story isn't finished. The battle has been won. The battle is won at the cross, but the story is not finished. The story will be finished when Jesus returns, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And in verse 14, Paul is continuing here. I'll read 13 again. Waiting for our blessed hope, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. See, Paul here in verse 14 is telling Titus to focus back on the cross. The cross is, is the marker in your life, in the life that you're to live now this way. You see, we've all broken God's law. When we were lost in lawlessness, at the beginning, when, when Eve and Adam ate the apple, everyone in the, in the human race became lost. And we needed a savior. Just like how our culture demands a sacrifice for, how, for what our forefathers did or how they acted, God demands a sacrifice or demanded a sacrifice for what Adam and Eve did. But God, in his great mercy, knew we could never pay for it, but sent his son who willingly sacrificed himself for us. He redeemed us from the death we deserved. See, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, into Jesus Christ, and commit to living for God, he makes you one of his people. He purifies you. He does it, you don't do it. He does it. He purifies for himself a people for his own possession. He didn't have to do it. But he did, he chose to do it. Just like all kind of, like at the beginning with my car, like they didn't have to do it, but they chose to do it. They redeemed the situation unmeritedly. They didn't have to. That's the gospel story. The gospel story is we are redeemed by grace. We're not redeemed by the works we do, but through that grace, through being saved, it's that teach us to live an upright, self-controlled, godly lives. Now I know, again, that's easier said than done, and we all struggle, I personally struggle with things. Um, but if you go back to verse 12, at the beginning of verse 12, it says, training us. You see the cross? When we reflect on the cross and put our faith and trust in it, it trains us to live godly lives. It's like athletes. When you, when people become athletes, they don't right away just become the greatest athlete there ever could be. They have, they put years of training into it, of work. They're constantly committed to it. They, they change, they take a complete 180. To how they live their lives. And that's very much like how it is to be a Christian. You have to, you have to lay down your life for Christ. It isn't that you just go to Sunday, go to church on Sunday and then you live your life completely opposite to what the Bible teaches. See, being called a Christian is a very high calling. But it is an unmerited calling. It is a redeemed calling. It's not an earned calling. It's a purchased calling, and that is purchased through the death of Jesus Christ. You see, when you, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're able to sing that, that good hymn, Jesus Paid It All. You can proclaim it. You can sing it as loud as you can. You can say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed, washed it white as snow. That is such a great, such a great verse in that, in that hymn. And if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you haven't turned to him, if you haven't called out to him, Lord, save me, now is the greatest time to do it, because we're in the present age, but there is another age coming, and all will give account. So I would just urge you if you haven't to do that. And if you have, if you if you're here and you call yourself a Christian, if you know what it is to follow Jesus, I would just encourage you to just reflect on what it is to be redeemed by grace, to re- be be redeemed by Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you that you sent jesus to us when we didn't deserve it when we didn't deserve to be saved we deserved a sinner's death but you chose in your great mercy to to just save us to call us to be your people i ask lord if there's anyone here who struggles with that or anyone who's watching online who's struggling with that that they would just call to you that they would know it doesn't need to be a big fancy prayer it just needs to be jesus come into my life in Jesus name amen